Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of December, St. Evans is supporting New Immigrant Community Empowerment, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of vulnerable and precarious immigrant workers and their families with a focus on day laborers, domestic workers, and newly arrived immigrants. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that really this is really happening, is about to drive to Austin with two cats. It's a long story short, but basically Hutch just got neutered and he needs to come with us. He needs to be watched, but we can't leave Brenda behind because we're really codependent. So we're taking the two of them. We're leaving George and Ray, who will literally spoon for a week straight. And yeah, I guess I'm taking two cats on a road trip. (laughs) Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda. And today's episode, which is episode 109, is pretty great if I do say so myself, and I will. <laughs> My guest is Michelle, who is head of brand at Son of a Tailor, a company that makes men's clothing to order. And we're going to talk all about the supply chain and how made to order clothing is so much more sustainable and ethical than fast fashion. We'll also ask ourselves, and this is a great question for all of us to ask ourselves. Where is the joy in fast fashion? Michelle has so many great thoughts to share, and I can't wait for all of you to hear them. Before that, we'll be hearing not one, not two, but three audio essays from small business owners in our community, including Victoria of Milkfed Press, Shannon of Agent Reclaim, and Jen of House of JC. You won't be hearing from me as much during this episode because full transparency, by the time you hear this, I will hopefully be almost or completely to Austin with Dustin. I'm recording this a couple days earlier in my robe, getting ready to get leave for this trip. (laughs) We're taking, like I said, our two cats and a load of furniture and life essentials to Austin, um, basically because you know, we're going to talk about the supply chain a lot in this episode, and I've been talking about it in previous episodes, but one impact of all these supply chain issues is there's also a trucker shortage. So we're really nervous that it's going to take a very long time for our stuff to get from Pennsylvania here in Bird in Hand to Austin. So we're taking a load down with us this weekend in hopes of having at least some life essentials there. Then we're going to drive back in a week and we're going to finish packing up and get the heck out of here. If you've been following along since the beginning of November, which surely at this point you have been, then you know that for the rest of the year, you'll be hearing audio essays from different small business owners within the close horse community. After all, small business is the future. 
This is something you all know I am super passionate about because not only is it a great way for you to learn about small businesses within our community, it's also a chance to learn more about the hows and whys of doing your own thing, being your own boss, and everything else that comes with it. Like My hope is that this will inspire you to go follow your own dream and start your own business because we need a heck of a lot more small businesses if we're ever going to dismantle the big business that exists right now. Furthermore, you know that I believe the personal is political and our own personal stories drive our decisions and our values. And sharing them is a way to connect with others and have an impact on their decisions and values. My hope is that hearing these small business stories will motivate you to shop small, be a cool, nice customer, and urge those around you to shop small and be cool, nice customers. Very important. I have received so many amazing audio essays that I may have to continue to share them into January. We'll see what happens. Today, you'll be hearing three back to back. So let's jump right in. Hi, Amanda. My name is Victoria, and I'm the owner and operator of a very small letterpress studio called Milk Fed Press. Um, gosh, how it began, I'd, I'd been working as a book repairer in a public library and um, just repairing books and just inevitably just studying the title pages and looking at all the graphics. It just uh, it made me curious. It, it made me wonder how to actually print a book. Who prints books these days? And so um, I reached out to a local fine printer and typographer, and uh, he took me in. He taught me everything. He taught me how to make a book. I mean, I knew how because I was a bookbinder, but how to print a book and how to create design. Um, And I did everything on the press. I didn't know how to turn on a computer Gosh, for the first five years of doing this, I would just go to a shop and find lead type or wooden type or artwork and create lino cuts and just put stuff together. I really, I was, I was obsessed with it. I was so hooked on showing up and having some raw materials that were so, you know, there's paper that was recycled and these, these beautiful, beautiful pieces of craft, you know, some of this type was hundreds of years old, and I, I had access to it. My hands learned to print this way, and learned to design this way, and that really was my biggest, greatest motivation. And then, you know, when I started, I'd, I'd always, I've always had a complete obsession with packaging, vintage packaging, and music. And so I think I really began creating show posters for friends. And my friend had a club, so bands would come through town, and I had this great opportunity to make for them. And I'd make a little money, and it was all in fun. And this really honed my design skills down. Um, you know, I it started as kind of a small little niche business kind of expanded. I started, people started asking me for invitations. They hadn't seen, you know, unique custom invitations like this with the texture and the graphics. And so I kind of just left bookbinding and set up shop. Um, It was a unique time when I began letterpress. It had been kind of a dying craft. Digital printing was new. And if you've ever printed anything, you hit print. And there's, that's it. And you have 
any color is possible, any design is pretty possible, but with letterpress, it's very slow and very deliberate, and um, I loved it. You know, you have to, in order to just, you have to find someone to teach you, and that was interesting, the people I would come across. You had to get the equipment. One of my presses, it's pretty much, yeah, I think it's safe to say it weighs more than an elephant. It's huge. And then, you know, there's all the time you spend looking for wood type and old cuts and just rummaging through literal scrap heaps to find stuff and give it new life. And it just, I was absolutely hooked on it, and I still am. Um, you know, I've created social stationery for a lot of years now, and I will say last year, in, or, in, in addition to everybody else's, my business, absolutely, there was no business um, I was just grateful to even be here and to be healthy, and that was enough. And just in desperation, I guess, I'm a maker. I'm an artist, and so I started creating prints just um, to offer people my own art just for fun, not, not related to any kind of events. And I started a subscription-based print club, and people showed up, and they supported me, and they kept my lights on. Uh, I don't know why, what inspired me to create this is I love, love your Clothes Horse podcast. And I really do feel like our values are in alignment. I know I'm not in the clothes business, but I do take very old things and make new things out of them. Um, I'm always, I guess how this has evolved, you know, long ago people would just go to the store and buy paper and buy the materials and print. But over the years, I'm really looking for things to print always, you know, I'll go to estate sales and find old unused stationery or garage sales. I found really cool stuff, old tags, whatnot. And I always, I'm always thinking about how to integrate them into my work. Um, and then an, another thing is, you know, the election, I know it's been a long time, but in 2016, it made me absolutely virtuous about where I spend my money and my support as well, like you. Um, I used to buy products from Uline, and I don't know if you knew this, but they, they sell packaging materials. They gave a lot of money to Trump, and so I'm really proud. I've not given them a penny since 2016. Um, and in, in fact, part of I love you posting about using reusing packaging, and I absolutely do my best to recycle as many boxes, and I save all of that stuff that I get, you know, packaging materials. And I, I reuse them. And, you know, people have asked me, what about your branding on your packages? And to be honest, I think nothing looks more sophisticated than using what I already have. So thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do with this. Thanks. Bye. Hi, my name is Shannon O'Hara, and I'm the founder and creative director of Agent Reclaim. We're a Toronto-based upcycle brand that is on a mission to be part of the solution by diverting textile waste out of landfill and reclaiming old, outdated, damaged leather garments into gorgeous, functional handbags and accessories. Agent Reclaim is passionate about upcycling the forgotten, damaged and unsellable garments and bringing them back to life in a new form by paying homage to its seams and extending its life cycle. 
I started this business about 10 years ago, mostly as a hobby, um, having received a pair of lovely chaps from a friend who, um, you know, was a, a, not a rancher, but did live on a farm and had some use for them. Um, and the leather was pretty damaged. Um, it was beautiful nonetheless. And, you know, with the fringe and all, um, uh, she had brought this to my attention that she wanted something done with them and she wasn't sure if it was something that I'd be interested in. So um, I jumped to it and um, Lucinda was born, which was a drawstring bag, um, which was part of a previous collection years ago. And um, I just fell in love with that idea of you know, bringing um, one one item, turning one item into another, and um, Agent Reclaim was born. So, I quickly made some uh, connections with both jobbers and thrifters um, to ensure that I could purchase uh, any of the damaged leather that came out of their resale opportunities, um, things that would eventually be sent literally to landfill. Um, I was able to purchase from them and and you know, create inventory, um, to make my products. Um, soon also realizing that, uh, I was no longer interested in creating product for the sake of creating product and that I really needed to understand my clientele. Um, so Etsy enabled me to do that, uh, and just sort of try things out one piece at a time and, um, build an audience or uh, a following, um, and uh, clientele, and, and that was that was really, um, really useful. Uh, and bit by bit, I started creating designs, and eventually, um, you know, in many cases, some of those design turned into custom designs, um, whereby that client would reach out um, through Etsy or through my site and request an addition or, you know, uh, some tweak to one of the designs. And, um, and that sort of created a whole new piece and then became uh, an, a new addition to my collection. And I, I do, I do so love that, that part of the business. So, um, yeah, I do love being a small business owner. I have to say it, it has scaled up quite a bit from that initial model, um, that was, you know, very doable on a shoestring budget, I have collaborated with some large brands to help them to divert their textile waste um, and uh, give opportunity uh, to look through the lens of capsule instead of landfill. I always go back to custom work. So whether it's uh, working with a garment that was collecting dust in someone's aunt's closet or uh, whether it's a piece that's, you know, truly loved, but a little more damaged than can be repaired. Um, I will work with that client. They'll send me um, pictures. We'll work on a sketch. And um, ultimately, the end result is something that, you know, both are really happy with. And um, I just feel so much fulfillment from that um, beautiful transaction. Um what else can I say? What motivates me? I'm motivated by um, just that—that that idea that you know something can be reclaimed um, from you know its original destiny to landfill into something that you know has a new lease on life and a new opportunity to be worn over and over again. I am so passionate about um, upcycling and about this opportunity for um, more circularity in in fashion and in that 
transaction between an individual and a brand. I think small business is the future. And I do believe that uh, having this kind of model towards zero waste, um, can't say I am fully zero waste, but I do uh, aspire to be. Um, But made to order definitely is something that enables a small business to really have control over any losses and to be able to really understand um, their market. So I'm honored to be able to you know, input my experiences and my philosophy into this, uh, this opportunity. Amanda, thank you for your awesome podcast, uh, which I love and follow regularly. And I can be found, Agent Reclaim can be found on IG at agent underscore reclaim. Also through our website, agentreclaim.com. That's A-G-E-N-T R-E-C-L-A-I-M.com as well as on Etsy at Agent Reclaim. Uh, wishing you all a lovely holiday season and hope that you are shopping your closet, regifting, swapping. Um, and if you are buying new, uh, you are buying with intention and purpose and supporting small businesses. Peace out. Hi, Close Horse. Such a pleasure to be here virtually. <laughs> My name is Jen, and I'm the one-woman show behind House of JC, a vintage wonderland specializing in home decor with some vintage clothing here and there. So my motivation for starting my shop was happiness, as crazy as that might sound. Uh, Before I started my shop, I was working full-time in buying for a very well-known luxury retailer, and I was the most miserable that I've ever been in my life. Uh, In retrospect, the company had some of the worst business practices I've ever seen, and their glass door is in absolute shambles to this day, Uh, so that probably didn't help my dissatisfaction, but it wasn't the sole reason that I was unhappy. After all, to quote the Devil Wears Prada, a million girls would have killed for my job. And the only way I can really explain what happened to me over the course of my three years in buying was just a complete energetic shift. I woke up one day, sat down at my desk, listened to my coworkers talk about the latest collections at Paris Fashion Week, and then like a wave, this feeling just rushed over me. And I just thought to myself, holy shit, this is so boring. And it was at that moment that I noticed that there was chanting outside of our office building. And so I looked out the window down below and I saw hundreds of people who were protesting. And it escapes me now what the cause was for. Civil unrest, climate change, Trump. I mean, who really knows? But whatever it was, it struck a chord in me to do something, anything that actually makes me feel good inside. And three days later... When I was the last person in my office at 11 o'clock at night, which was very normal at that time, I typed up a resignation letter and I quit. And then (laughs) there was a global pandemic. (laughs) I couldn't have foreseen that one. Being from New York City, I have been selling vintage since I was a teenager, a common side hustle for everybody that I knew growing up, and I was still selling on the side. In fact, some months I made even more than I did on salary at my real job. So I dug my heels in even further, and having grown to love interior design now even more than fashion, 
I decided to dabble in selling vintage decor. Somehow, I've been getting by on doing this for two years. Uh, I still keep a part-time remote job, and I do one-off projects for people because I'm hardwired to want multiple revenue streams, but my shop, House of JC, is still here, and I haven't given up on her. And uh, real talk, owning your own business is so hard, like much harder than the internet would have you believe. I truly believe that you have to be crazy or passionate to the point people think you're crazy to want to have your own business. And I think I'm both, honestly. I've always been a risk taker, so I kind of feel like this was bound to happen for me at one point or another, but it's terrifying because you can do everything right and still not hit the jackpot, you know? But the highs are so invigorating that it keeps you going. I have days where I feel like I'm playing pretend and all the balls that I'm juggling are going to come crashing down. And then something wonderful will happen in my shop that makes me feel like all of this is worth it. Like someone telling you that they're buying something from your shop as a wedding gift, that honestly is one of the greatest feelings. That someone looked at my store and spent their hard-earned money with me for one of the most sentimental items that you could ever give. Those are the moments that make me feel like I'm doing something right and that I should keep going. And it makes me feel like I'm remaining true to what I told myself that day in 2019 when I saw protesters in the street, when I was in my office listening to people talk about what designer Kylie Jenner was wearing. I feel like I have a purpose. I get to curate a collection of beautiful things that make people happy. I also get to feel good knowing that I have a small part to play in a sustainable economy. And it may not look like much to some, and it honestly may look like a downgrade to the life I had before, but I have never been happier. I just want to thank everyone whose essays you heard today and all of the others you will hear in the coming weeks. I know it's hard to record yourself talking. It's been so incredible to hear the actual voices and stories of so many members of our community. Like I see some of you around the internet, but to actually hear you and get to know you is so powerful for me. I hope it will inspire all of you who didn't contribute to this round to participate in future rounds. Speaking of the next round of audio essays, I have a topic for it and I want to tell you all about it. This was a topic I'd been considering for a few weeks, maybe even longer. And then when I received a lot of messages after the last episode where Rachel of Kara Kara and I talked about our experiences in the hashtag girl boss era, then I was, so I was thinking, okay, this topic is definitely a good one. Then I listened to Jen's incredible audio essay about what motivated her to leave her job. Well, that combination, it just solidified the topic for the next round of audio essays. And that topic is, drum roll please, tell us about the time you quit a job. What finally made you do it? How did you feel? What happened next? Did you start a new project? Did you start your own business? Did you go somewhere better? Did you change your career? Did you take some time off? I want to hear all about it. Did it improve your mental and physical health? And what is your advice for others who might be on the verge of making the same decision for themselves, but they're afraid, 
they're nervous, they don't know how to do it. I want to hear all about it from you. As a reminder, an audio essay is a recording you make using either your phone or your computer, and you email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world, and then I edit it and mix it and add it to an episode. It can be anonymous or not. You can choose to name the job you quit or not. You control your story here. You give as much detail as you are comfortable giving. I'm just going to add here because I have received some messages about this. I will not accept written essays for this. Full disclosure, I have some speech issues that you probably don't notice, but they make it very difficult for me to read other people's writing aloud. My own brain is able to construct a script that I can read with ease and efficiency and sound very clear and coherent, but I often struggle with reading other people's writing aloud, and it requires a lot of takes and editing. It's really frustrating. It eats up so much time, and I'm just naming some boundaries here. I can't can't do that anymore. Not that it's really anybody's business, but I've received some pushback on this. I'm just going to tell you, I don't have reading comprehension issues. As you all know, if you've been listening long enough, I'm a speed reader. I devour tons of written content every day. But there's a missing piece somewhere between my brain and my mouth when I read out loud. So I just need to save myself some frustration there and save myself some time. So please record your essay. I know it's weird to do. It's super strange to hear your own voice. Uh, It's just not a comfortable place for a lot of us. I mean, I don't know. Raise your hand if leaving someone a voicemail. I know, antiquated idea is excruciating because it is for me. I can't handle it. I'm glad we barely leave voicemails anymore in 2021. But I promise when you're done with it, you'll be super glad you did it. And like I said, I edit everything to make you sound like the smartest and most eloquent version of yourself. So record your story. I recommend that you write it out, then record it. It's okay if you make a mistake while recording, just keep going. Say, say that part over again and keep going. Don't stop. Don't start over. I will edit it all and it will make it a much easier process for you if you don't continue to start over and over again. I'm giving you this advice as someone who's now recorded 109 episodes of this podcast, plus the department, plus the minisodes, plus the Patreon episodes. And in the beginning, I would stop myself and start over constantly because I said one thing wrong. And now I realize, just keep going. It all works out at the end. Editing is so magical. Okay, the deadline for this project is January 15th. So you have some time to figure it out. Your recording should be anywhere from three minutes to 10 minutes long. And once again, you're going to send that to Amanda at closehorse.world. If you have a business of your own that you would like to include in that, just you know, shout it out, give the Instagram handle, website, all that stuff. The most powerful thing that has happened for me since beginning my work on Close Horse is meeting all of you, of seeing this community build around it, of seeing how passionate and creative and talented everyone in this community is. It means so much to me. And honestly, it's changed my life for the good. Saying the good is an understatement. I mean, it's changed my life forever in a very magical, powerful way. All of you have kept me going when I did not think I could. And that is so important. This community is important to me 
you are important to me. And I'm constantly thinking of ways to empower our community, to empower all of you to hear everyone's stories, to build relationships, and to grow this movement. I really believe that we can change the world by working together. And I'm so glad you're here to help. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Clothes Horse. I've been a fan of New Works for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go, Newworks is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite Newworks purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the ash and chest print Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the Newworks prints are unique conversation starters, All of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love New Works, let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, New Works is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. All New Works products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really so cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, Newworks now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for Newworks products because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman-owned, women-run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shiny gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at Clothes Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new N-O-O. All right, well, I'm so excited for you to meet Michelle of Son of a Tailor. 
Son of a Tailor offers affordable, high-quality, made-to-order clothing for men. This is not an ad, and I wrote that copy myself because if this were a real ad, it would be way better copy, right? (laughs) Anyway, made-to-order feels like a weird and uncomfortable concept for us. I know the first time I ordered something made-to-order, I felt very anxious. But made-to-order clothing was actually the way that just about everyone acquired clothing until the middle of the 20th century, and then it slowly waned and has now all but disappeared. Michelle is going to unpack all of the sustainable and ethical aspects of made-to-order clothing in our conversation. But before we jump into that, I want to remind you of some key facts about the fashion industry. These will sound familiar to you because I touch on them often, but I think it's important to, you know, set the stage here. First off, the fashion industry makes about 150 billion garments each year. Pin that number in your brain because we're going to come back to it. 30% of that 150 billion will never sell. Don't worry, I already did the math for you. That's 45 billion garments, 45 billion with a B garments. These items will never sell for a variety of reasons. Maybe they have fit issues, customers didn't like them, the quality was just so far off that the retailer didn't even dare to try to sell it, or because the retailer just made too much product in the first place and there were just only so many customers to sell it to. You might remember way back in the early days of Close Horse, uh, it was a series of episodes with Janine. We talked about overproduction, uh, over-inventory, and what happens to it. I talked then about how H&M has had this massive overproduction problem. In 2018, H&M reported sitting on millions, possibly billions of unsold garments. This is one of those things that if you like worked in the industry, you were passing around like wildfire. Everybody was emailing it to everyone like, oh my God, could this happen to us? H&M had $4.3 billion worth of inventory that it could not sell. That is a nightmare if you're a buyer. That is a nightmare if you work in finance. That is a nightmare if you care about the planet, right? H&M produces so many clothes that a power plant in a Swedish town called Vesteras relies partially on burning H&M's defective and unsold products to create energy. In 2017 alone, that plant incinerated 15 tons of clothing. I would also question the health and safety of burning synthetic clothing since we know more than half of clothes made these days and probably well more than half of clothes sold by H&M are made of synthetic fabrics. I also just want to add here that the statistics I just gave you, they are three, four years old about H&M and that's because H&M has been really secretive about this information and what did come out was really dug out by a lot of investigation and there just hasn't been as much lately. I have no doubt that this is still happening and This is happening at every major retailer in the world, whether it's in clothing or it's a CVS pharmacy, it's a craft store, it's a, you know, a Target, a Walmart, it's happening everywhere. Excess inventory overproduction is a huge problem in all consumer goods categories. But let's go back to that 150 billion garments the industry is making each year. 
as we said, 45 billion of those will never be bought and they will head to the landfill or the incinerator. So that leaves 105 billion that will be bought. But half of those, that's 52 and a half billion garments, will be sold on sale. Why? Well, it's it's a complex mix, right? For one, we we know we are addicted to a hot deal. And as we've discussed many times around here, it's becoming harder and harder for the industry to sell us anything at full price. To be clear, that is a problem the industry created for itself. That's not our fault. But on top of that, retailers are marking this stuff down to deeper and deeper discounts because they created too much inventory in the first place and they need us to desperately take it. Once again, maybe it was the wrong trend, maybe it was what we didn't like, maybe it didn't fit well, maybe it was a bad color. Most likely, they just made too much. Even if these retailers mark everything down to a dollar and they only get one dollar back on everything that they couldn't sell, they're still coming out ahead because that's better than not receiving a cent and having to pay to dispose of it. Now, it's the customer's responsibility to deal with this garment when they're done with it, which often will be pretty fast, right? In effect, we, the customers, are paying retailers for the privilege of disposing of their inventory liability. Yes, we are paying to take on that company's burden. When you paint it that way, it's not a good deal anymore, right? Analysts agree that the industry is making way too much clothing. Anywhere from 12 to 30% of their annual production is essentially a waste of money, time, and resources. And I'll explain more in my conversation with Michelle about how and why this happens. But in short, it's a mixture of picking the wrong trends, creating delusional sales plans that require a delusional amount of inventory to achieve, and a system that incentivizes larger buys with lower costing. Now that I've given you the background and hopefully not totally spoiled our conversation, let's jump right in. Michelle, why don't you tell everyone who you are? Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Michelle. And I am currently head of brand marketing at Son of a Tailor, which is a startup that's working on re-engineering the supply chain of fashion around made to order as opposed to mass production. And where are you right now? I'm currently in London, although our company is headquartered in Copenhagen, uh, which I've slowly come to learn is pretty much the epicenter of sustainable fashion. Interesting. I mean, that that makes sense to me. Why, why do you think that it's the epicenter of sustainable fashion. Gosh, I don't know. I was just at uh, Copenhagen Fashion Week a couple weeks ago, and it was incredible to see the different speakers from different brands, and the CEO and founder of Ghani was there. You know, they're more of a luxury brand that's talked a lot about sustainability. But I think, you know, when you're in this ecosystem, companies tend to bounce off each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've talked to to my uh, boss, the CEO, about different partnerships we could do. And I was like, you know, it'd be really great if we could partner with this company. And he's like, oh, I know them. (laughs) And I think what's really great about the sustainable brand movement is, yeah, I mean, you might be competing with brands for sales, but it's really a community of different companies that are all working towards a broader goal, which is growing their business, but also shifting how we're doing business to a more sustainable way. And I found that everyone is super supportive of working together and sharing ideas. 
And there's really that ecosystem is growing in Copenhagen. I mean, I love that. I do feel that community is a big part of sustainability and ethical fashion. And I think we need more of that. You know, when we look at the large companies out there that are doing everything the exact opposite of sustainable and ethical, there is no community there. It is about dominating the market, taking the biggest market share, but there's not a lot of collaboration, like true collaboration with its competitors. Like imagine if H&M and Zara were like, we're going to work together to make fashion more sustainable. I mean, that would be huge for the world, you know? <laughs> oh, totally. And I actually feel like that collaboration is what would actually enable a lot of that shift to happen. Because Agreed. imagine if you're H&M inside, you know, there are decisions they could make to make fashion more sustainable, but I'm sure a lot of that is then shot down. Well, it's, you know, if we make this decision, our costs are going to go up and then Zara is mm-hmm. going to undercut us. And then what? Exactly. it was like, you know, let's all make an agreement on this together in the same way that, you know, we need different countries to come together on climate accords. <laughs> That's such a funny idea. Maybe we need a climate accord for the fashion industry to say, hey, you know, arms down, we're all agreeing on this together. Right, right. Because I think you hit the nail on the head there, especially living in the in what I call late stage fast fashion era. <laughs> it's been around for a while now. You know, all the retailers raced to the bottom to have the lowest prices and they've all been hovering down there and now they're struggling because they have no point of differentiation. And I'm sure they're super fearful of raising their prices even a dollar because then, yeah, their competitor is going to swoop in and take those customers. So if everybody worked together, one, the price increase probably wouldn't need to be as massive because, and massive being an understatement, like it wouldn't be that much to begin with, but they would be able to work together to help convert these factories to leverage the supply chain and really make it the standard rather than the exception. But two, they would all be raising their prices, if at all, together. And so then everybody would feel, everybody meaning all these fast fashion brands, would feel like protected and safe to make this decision. But like, once again, it's just really hard for me to imagine H&M and Zara and Madewell and like, Urban Outfitters all getting together and like having a group hug and working on things. (laughs) But I love the idea. I support that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I mean, maybe it's just, maybe the companies can Copenhagen can start it and everyone will slowly get on board. Totally, totally. I mean, and so one thing we're going to talk about today is one of those parts of the process, one of the elements of the way clothing is made and sold today that really leads to a lot of waste, and that is mass manufacturing. So you work for a company that is made to order, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But for everyone who's listening, I just want to explain that, I mean, I think this is probably pretty obvious to people, but just to be clear, uh, the stuff that we buy, whether it's in the store or online, for the most part, was part of a larger, pretty big order, depending on where you're buying it from. And, And when I say that, I'm talking when you're buying from a big retailer, right, a big brand, that some of that stuff was ordered by that company eight or six months before you bought it. Um, they're planning that far out, and they're buying it in big chunks. And yes, they use, I hope, depending on the brand, a lot of math and strategy and forecasting to figure out how much they should buy. But there's also the element of trend. And so what we're seeing is a lot of brands and retailers six, eight, even three months out really 
trying to forecast what the trend will be at the moment that stuff is available for sale. Now, fast fashion has become super fast fashion by narrowing that time period and saying, we can turn it around in 60 days or 30 days. So we're forecasting those trends a lot less in advance, but they're still trying to forecast a trend, guess what their customer wants, and you know, they're, then they're shipping it all via air and rushing the whole process in general in hopes of not putting their money into the wrong trend. So what happens is a lot of stuff that gets delivered to stores, to online stores, ends up being stuff that wasn't the right trend or it's not what customers like or someone else did it better. And so it gets wasted. You know, this is the stuff that we see going to landfills, being shredded. You know, when we had the trash walker on and we talked about all of the crazy garbage of like perfectly good product that's going into the garbage from a lot of these retailers, this is where it starts, is with this, it's months and months in advance and we're trying to guess what people are going to buy. So your, your company, Michelle, does it differently because everything is made for a specific customer when the customer orders it. Can you explain how that process is different? Yeah, exactly. It's super cool. I just for a bit of background, did not come from the fashion industry. I actually worked uh, in management consulting before joining Son of a Tailor. Um, but when I spoke to the CEO and I just realized how innovative this was, I was looking for a brand to join. And I was like, this is the company that I have to join. Essentially, it's flipping the entire model on its head. So typically, as you've described, the way fashion works is we produce a ton of stuff. So a ton of fabric and materials that gets turned into these different trends you're talking about. But you've essentially got all these people doing a lot of guesswork with a lot of analytics involved, but essentially guesswork at what's going to sell. And then whatever doesn't sell is marked down and often even burned to make room for that next wave of inventory. When you think about that, it almost sounds kind of archaic, like something you would do in the 1800s. Yeah, but it's happening more and more in this century than it ever has. Because even in the last century, uh, which, gosh, I can't believe that was like more than 20 years ago now, (laughs) um, there was less product that was a mistake in the first place, you know, that like wasn't the right trend or didn't fit right or customers didn't just choose. And so often that stuff could be funneled into like off-price, like TJ Maxx or Ross or, you know, outlets things like that. And so what you were left with that was unsold and unworn was pretty minimal. But what happened in this century as there's just so much product being created all the time, it's well more than there is actually capacity to buy it basically. And so this is where we see more and more stuff just being egregiously wasted. Yeah, exactly. And so what we're doing is taking that entire model and essentially flipping the order. So we don't produce anything until it's already been sold. And this is already actually done in a lot of industries. So you think about furniture, you know, you buy a couch, you see it in the showroom, but they don't have a giant warehouse of all these couches that that would take up a ton of space. Different people (laughs) want different couches. Like think about how much waste that would be. Right. And if they had to then burn the couches next year to make room for the next. Oh my God. I don't even want to think about it. Wait a couple weeks and they get one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like, People are pretty accepting of that, right? Like they're like, yeah, of course, it's a couch. Yeah, I'll wait, right? 
But there yeah. seems to be more resistance when we talk about clothing. For us, what we were working on is, is there a way to kind of get rid of some of those hesitations? You know, people hear me to order and think, oh, it's going to take forever. It's going to be super expensive. There's no way we can do this with fashion. And actually, you can get rid of a lot of those things and come out with some benefits. Um, and it's taken a while. So with us at Summer Taylor, what we've done is apply Toyota's kind of lean manufacturing to made to order to make it more efficient and quicker and also at the same level, high street prices. So not fast fashion prices, but fairly affordable to get something completely made to order. And the great thing about this is for the environment, there's no overproduction. We're not producing a ton of inventory that's then sitting around getting burnt. You place an order, we make it and start kind of making it that day. Um, But what's really great is that we then size it perfectly to the customer. So we have a perfect fit algorithm. So for you, instead of getting, you know, size small, you'd get size Amanda. And (laughs) the great thing about that is you're probably not going to return it because it's going to fit you perfectly. So then all the returns that happen because of e-commerce, all the emissions from those returns are also gone. It's also higher quality. So you're going to keep it longer and rewear it more, which is also great. And that also kind of is a huge foil to what's going on with fast fashion. I think a little bit of what you're implying in this new era of like disposable fashion, Instagram and TikTok. And I need to have a new outfit for each social media look. And so I'm just constantly buying to align to all these trends as opposed to doing something that's actually quite cool, which is re-wearing the same thing because that means it's high quality garment that you've actually invested in and it's better for the environment. Totally, totally. I mean, I have seen more even like makers in the close horse community adopting this model, right? Like they have the materials, they'll post like a an image, a photo, you know, a photograph of what what the product will be, but ultimately everything is made to order to a person's specific sizes and it's it's really successful, but I also see people complaining. Like I don't want to wait 2 or 3 or 4 weeks for clothing and I, I mean, when you and I were ta- were preparing for this episode, we talked about the idea of convenience and how convenience has sort of gotten out of hand. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? I know all over London, there's these startups that are not just, you know, grocery delivery, but 10 minute grocery delivery. Jeez, like you're just starving. You got to get that food right away. You know, oh, like yeah, it's-, it's wild. And there's four <laughs> or five of them that have all gotten VC funding in the past year. And if you go on the tube in London, the advertisements are literally next to each other, all offering different ways to get your groceries <laughs> without you having to go to the store or even, you know, get up and do anything else because it's going to be here in 15 minutes. I mean, that is wild to me. I guess if you're like in a hurry and you got to get somewhere else, fine. I guess it's okay for grocery delivery to be really fast. But our attitude, unfortunately, and I think Amazon has fueled a lot of this, is that we should see something online that we want to buy and have it in 24 or 48 hours. And, like, that's that. And, you know, without actually going to a store and physically buying it, right? Because we want it even more convenient than going out and buying it ourselves. As we are seeing now, this convenience, this, like, clothing and shoes and jewelry and everything else that arrives basically on demand as fast as possible, it has a price for our environment. Um, and what that is, that that price is that is that, well, for one, we buy way too much stuff. And two, a lot of this stuff just isn't that great, right? Like it doesn't really fit us that well. 
It's not that great of quality. The fabric's not that great. And that's because, among many other reasons, the manufacturers are rushing through this process to make this product as fast as possible, to get it to us as fast as possible. So they aren't really like fitting it to people. They're I mean, let me tell you, the number of times I've been in a meeting where we've been like, well, it'll fit someone. That's terrible. (laughs) And just like the whole thing, you know, the sewing's not that great. It's all rushed. It's so fast. And it makes this clothing automatically disappointing when we get it. And it makes it more disposable. So not only are retailers creating more waste on their end by making a lot of stuff that no one wants to buy, they're making even more waste on our end by selling us stuff that we don't really like that much. And you said something when we were preparing for this. You said, what if fast fashion was rebranded as disposable fashion? hundred percent. How would that change its image, right? It, it's gross when you say it that way, but they're kind of synonymous. Not even kind of, they are synonymous at this point. Yeah. Most fast fashion is only worn a couple of times, if worn at all, and it's ending up in the trash. Oh yeah. I think uh, there's a ton of stats on this, but I think we had one from McKinsey that said, you know, 60% of clothes are thrown out in a year, which is just wild. And the mm-hmm. word fast is very trendy. It sounds like, oh, you know, fast internet, fast this. It sounds like it's something futuristic. Uh, but one of the things uh, I like to think about, and it's a conversation I've actually just had with some friends sometimes, is, you know, what are things that exist today that, you know, 20 years from now we're going to be like, wait, we did that? Or, you know, that's super weird. <laughs> and I think fast fashion is going to be one of them. Like, oh, you bought a T-shirt that was just then, you know, essentially made a fabric that feels like plastic to wear once and then throw away like if you try to imagine this world where humans have figured out a way to live sustainably and not be a net negative on the planet fast fashion has zero place oh yeah for sure for sure and I think it does like when you take a step back it feels like such a strange anomaly for human history like if we traveled back in time to like the 60s and we said, hey, who wants all these t-shirts that you can wear one time and throw out? <laughs> Everyone been like, what? That's clothing. <laughs> We're going to wear it for a really long time. Or why does it fit so weird? Or why is it plastic? You know, I think the fast fashion era is this really, I hope, small window that we're closing now. And maybe we're closing it slowly and we need to pick up the momentum there. But I truly like to believe Although, to be fair, every time I see someone do a Shein haul on uh, Instagram, I feel differently. But I like oh, to God. believe that that window is closing, that we're all seeing that it doesn't make any sense to have this flow of mostly disappointing, low-quality, poor-fitting product flowing in and out of our lives into landfills. You know? it's It doesn't feel nice. Absolutely. And I think that's why this, like, the fast-to-disposal branding needs to happen I um, used to work for uh, a sustainable water bottle brand that I co-founded during business school. And with that, you know, one of the big things that we were focused on is eradicating ocean plastic. But that was way almost easier in a way because, you know, you show a picture of plastic in the ocean, people get it. Right. And they think the plastic bottle has become so demonized. Whereas a fast fashion t-shirt, people have yet to really equate that with waste. Mm -hmm. It's true. 
but that's essentially what it is. If you wear it once and throw it away, how is a fast fashion t-shirt any different from a plastic bottle? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was I was talking with another guest a few days ago. We were recording and we were talking about how specifically in in well, I I can only speak to the United States. I would I would assume it's the case in most countries in the global north. Uh we talk about like trash and stuff, for most of us, the last time we have any visibility into what we've thrown out is when we put it in the trash can out outside the house, right? Like we we don't see landfills. I couldn't even tell you where the landfill near my house is. I have no eyes on what it looks like inside a landfill because they're covered and they're hidden. And so we don't see the mountains of t-shirts and going out clothes and Halloween costumes and God knows what else that are piled up in there because it doesn't exist for us. It's like the moment we throw it in the trash, that clothing no longer exists in our minds anymore. And so we we don't see, we don't experience, a lot of us, the firsthand impact of all of this waste. It's like a distant, it's a distant idea. And so when you can't I mean, it would be great. I I would love to go to a landfill and take pictures of all the t-shirts and nonsense in there. Wouldn't you? I mean, it would be gross, but it would be important to see. Whereas like we see. We yeah, see part of me, I feel like I just feel so much guilt. Yeah. But you're 100% right. And to be honest, I was thinking, I'm like, I don't even know the first step to even finding a land. And that you would be allowed to have access to, right? Whereas like the ocean is right there and, you know, overall it's open to the public and people are out there taking photos of trash on beaches, trash in the water, trash of impacting marine life. And it affects you, right? You want to yeah. go to the beach and have your vacation and suddenly there's like trash in the water. Right. And it fun. makes a personal impact on you. And I think that if we did have more visibility into what's happening to our clothes, if we actually saw the landfill. I mean, you know, in countries that don't have the same robust, intense waste infrastructure, those people see the impact of clothing waste. They see it blowing around. They see it on the beaches. They see it in alleys. Uh, I just recorded a series of interviews about, which will have already aired by the time this comes out, about the impact all of our secondhand clothing that we don't want all of our wasted clothing, basically the impact it has on Ghana. And one of the people I interviewed described a rainstorm and just a wave of all this crappy secondhand unwanted fast fashion, just creating literally a wave that flowed down the street. And like that, that's, that's a vision right there. Are there photos of that? I would love to see that. I mean, I can imagine it, but that just sounds – and I, I think that's the kind of stuff that we need to be putting Agreed. out there. Agreed. You know, there's the, the, the visions of the, the fish or the turtle caught in plastic, but we need something like this to show that it's not just plastic in the form of food canisters. Plastic is your clothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, plastic is your clothing. It should be the slogan of clothes horse or one of them at this point because it's true. And I think – Gosh, you guys have so many good slogans. <laughs> I think about, uh, I mean, gosh, this was probably two years ago now. The maybe longer, the plastic straws, the turtles, all that imagery going around social media, and it made people give up straws. Right? It created a large amount of public outcry that was enough to at least, you know, make m- more restaurants start using paper straws or change their cup design or whatever. 
we need the same thing with all of this wasted clothing because here in the United States, 85% of our unwanted clothing goes to the landfill in the first place. So when I talk about a wave of clothing, of unwanted clothing, literally flowing down a street in Ghana, that's only a small percentage of all the clothing that we're wasting every year in the name of like convenience and instant gratification and new outfits for every occasion. Where's the joy? There's no joy in the first place. At least if you were like, I felt great when I wore those clothes. I had so many good memories with them. They changed my life. They opened my doors, whatever. At least you could say, well, that's the price of joy. But I look at all these poor, poor fitting, plastic, disappointing clothes that people are buying. There's no joy. What's the point? What's the point of the whole thing? That's like pretty big right there. But like, what is the point of it all? I guess it's to make money. Gosh, I love this joy question. It's funny. My mind in marketing always goes to, you know, how do we make a campaign on this? And when you say joy, it makes me think of Marie Kondo and obviously, you know, the joy of a shirt and feeling that and be like, I'm going to hold on to this item because it gives me joy. I feel like she would be a great person to partner on this with, you know, there is what was the joy in the end of life of clothing or, you know, the lack of joy in fast fashion. She has such a big audience and people recognize her. I feel like she should actually speak out on Mm -hmm, this. mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I think sometimes I give Marie Kondo a hard time because she encouraged tons of people to just throw things out, which wasn't necessarily the best path forward, at least for Americans who tend to consume and hoard way too much. But I agree. Like, Where is the joy in fast fashion in the first place? We've already established that the, there's no joy in the end of life for these products. It's whatever's the exact opposite of joy is is what's happening when we're done with it. But the joy when you open the box and put it on isn't really there either. And I would say when I was at my peak of buying fast fashion clothing, 99% of the time, rather than feeling joy when I put something something on, I felt disappointment or sadness or insecurity about my body or like uh, if I were a better, different, more physically attractive person, physically right person, then these clothes would fit me and I would look great. Instead, I look terrible. And really, it was just the clothes, the clothes fault, not mine, right? <laughs> Where is the joy in fast fashion? A hundred percent. And when something is made in a mass way, you know, it's not made to fit your body you know, we look at sizes and, you know, a, a lot of the marketing we want to do at Sama Taylor is really to point out, and I think as you do very well, a lot of the absurdities in the fashion industry. <laughs> yeah. And I, I find sizes just so absurd. The fact that sizes, you know, you'd think they're supposed to help you as the customer. Oh, this is my size. Really, they're just there to help the manufacturers be like, all right, we can produce 10,000 of this item in medium, 10,000 in small, 10,000 in large. And then it's, you know, you go to one store, you're this size, another, you're that size. And then you have to have a sizing guide to tell you what the size actually means. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then it might not even be accurate anyway. And of course, things have spiraled out of control. I mean, I've talked about this ad nauseum on previous episodes, but basically about half of all clothing, specifically fast fashion clothing, is being returned after it's bought because of the fit and that stuff gets wasted, you know? So there are just so many ways in which, like so many channels, I guess, of the flow of waste around fast fashion. Some of it's in the beginning, some of it's after the customer 
throws it out, but there are all these other places in between where more and more stuff sort of gets wasted in different ways. So this made-to-order concept makes so much sense. So first I thought, let's let's tick off all of the ways in which a made-to-order model is great. And then after that, we'll dispel all of the negative connotations people have with that, okay? So why don't you tell me when someone comes to you and says, why do you do made to order instead of just buying a ton of, like a ton of inventory all at once? Why do you do that? What do you say? Oh gosh, so many different benefits. So one is, you know, zero overproduction. So we don't have this rack of inventory that may or may not get sold. We're only producing exactly what is demanded. So we have zero waste from that side. Uh, another thing is that we can make it fit you perfectly. So as you mentioned, a lot of things, the vast majority of things are returned because they fit poorly. Well, because we can actually make it individually for you each time, that problem is also gone. So you don't have the extra items returned. You also don't have the emissions from shipping an item back and forth. It also encourages the right KPIs. So think about, you know, a mass fashion factory. When you're trying to produce a thousand at once, you're kind of focused, forced to think about cutting costs and making things go as fast as possible and as cheaply as possible. Whereas when you're making something to order for each customer, your KPIs change and you're focused a bit more on the quality and making something to make that person satisfied and want to really take care of that item and wear it a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And finally, you know, made to order, it's not easy. Uh, and so one of the things that we have to do at Son of a Tailor is make our model 100% traceable because before making a garment for you specifically, we can't lose that garment and lose the name and the data attached to it. But that actually has some benefits as well. Because our model is 100% traceable and we have your data kind of flowing through each step, there's no opaque supply chain. Uh, garment workers are often mistreated in fashion. Mm -hmm. And in our case, we actually know the name of every single one of our seamstresses and your item will actually come signed by one of the members of the garment team. Something we want to do is really reconnect the garment workers to those who make the products because the, the human aspect of fashion has also kind of been lost. You know, you buy something in a store, you have no idea who made it. Yeah, and with us, you know, we can ensure these people are paid a living wage and taken care of. And when you think about the future of fashion, it should have all these things. It should have less waste, people treated like people. And also <laughs> you buy a garment and you know it's going to make you look good and not have to think about, you know, my body is incorrect because this shirt didn't fit. Actually, if the shirt doesn't fit, it's the shirt that's incorrect. It's true. It's true. And I think, man, I mean, it's something that a lot of us just don't think about. You know, we, our automatic go-to is like, I'm the problem. But the process, the system is the problem, you know? Think about, I mean, I think that fast fashion has a really negative impact on our mental health in a, in a wide variety of ways. I mean, one is like that disappointment that occurs when you try stuff on and it doesn't fit or it doesn't make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. I think there is the burden of owning too much stuff, which is a burden that wears on you every time you have to move, every time you're trying to organize your life. It's the stuff that's the problem, right? Or even do you ever find yourself like getting ready in the morning and you open your closet and there's just there's this paradox of choice. And then I feel guilty about these clothes that I have in my closet for whatever reason yeah. that don't make me feel good. So I don't wear them. 
But then I look at them and it's almost like <laughs> they're making me feel bad because they're there and I'm ignoring them. And I really only have a few items that I just love to wear and I wear often. Oh my gosh. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> That is such a good point. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, where is the joy in fast fashion? I guess there's the joy of like getting a big box and like unpacking it like on Christmas Day when you were a kid, but then it's over. And what's left is like, I don't know, just like not a good feeling. And when you describe it like that, it sounds like a drug, right? You get so excited and then the high wears off and you've got to get the next one. Exactly, exactly. I equate it to like when you get an ice cream sundae, right? The first bite is the most delicious bite. Like you're just like, oh, yes, this is what I've been wanting. This is so good. And then about halfway through it, it starts to feel like a slog. Like you got to finish it. And it's like your taste buds are sort of like not as receptive to it anymore. They're numb at that yeah, point. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. I would love for someone to do a study on that because it's like each bite of an ice cream sundae is less delicious than the previous one. And then you hit a point where it's like a burden rather than a joy. <laughs> and that's how I feel about fast fashion. Like there's a part of the process that's really exhilarating and then it drops off pretty fast, like way faster than the deliciousness of an ice cream sundae. Like if they were graphs, they would be a little bit different, but the same theme. Uh, and I th- I th- just, it's like we get excited about the convenience. We get excited about the quantity, the volume, the constant flow of newness into our lives. But ultimately, we're just not that happy, you know? It's just never exactly what we wanted or needed. So – Like I said, I see people on the internet all over the place complaining about made-to-order stuff, whether it is clothing or ceramics or pins or any number of things you can buy on Etsy. There's a lot of like, I wanted this like seven days ago. You know, like I waited. My mom's birthday is tomorrow and I ordered this gift today. And like, why isn't it made yet? You know, like there's just a lot of like – why can't I have it oh right my away? Like, whose fault is that? I know. I know. <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> I had a boss once who had a plaque on their desk that said, like, your lack of planning is not my crisis. And I feel like every oh maker God, out there that. needs that sign, right? <laughs> so let's talk about some of the myths or, I, like, faux negatives around made-to-order clothing. First off is, like, it takes too long. How long does it take your company to turn something around generally? So this is something we've been working on for a while. Uh, it depends a bit on which item you're ordering. So we just launched our Oxford t-shirt or Oxford kind of button down shirt. Uh, that one takes a bit longer, but our t-shirts we've been making made to order uh, for the past five, six years now. And just a few years ago, it took 18 days uh, to go from start to finish and get you a perfect fitting t-shirt and that was in 2018 and now the average is seven days uh which is amazing yeah. and that really comes from us using this constant improvement lean manufacturing principles that's amazing um and ideally we want to get that even lower it's never going to be you know the 15 minute grocery delivery but <laughs> to get something handmade to your measurements there is also i mean there, there is no stock and it's funny because sometimes customers think that we secretly have a stock of items. They're like, no, really. But like, I have this event tomorrow. Can you make an exception? And we're like, no, like 
there is no product in stock. <laughs> exactly. There is no product in stock. I think, I mean, once again, though, that like what that really says for most of us is that we need to change our behavior. Like, like I was saying, people being angry that they can't get their mom's gift the next day. We maybe we don't need to get clothing the same day, the same week. I mean, I'm still my mind is still reeling from 15 minute grocery delivery. That it takes me like 45 minutes to buy groceries. Anyway, uh, I I think that we need to slow down and level set our expectations as well. Like that's it's amazing that you've been able to to decrease the time for make to order to to that window, but it's still it's like it's not that long, you know. It's not like it, you know, in a couple of weeks, you're suddenly get, your whole life is going to change. You're not going to want those clothes anymore. But when we're used to being able to buy something, get it really fast, and immediately make a decision, like to send it back super fast or throw it out super fast, uh, that's that's a that's a shift in like sort of I don't know day to day life, the way we live, the way we make decisions, the way we expect things to play out. I think back to when I was like a teenager. And I would buy stuff from Delia's or something. It would take weeks for it to come. Believe it or not, there was a time. I forgot about Delia's. Yeah, that stuff would take like, man, I remember my mom would like write a check to pay for it, right? So we would mail it. And then they would have to get the check, get the order, and they would have to pack it up and send it to us. So we're talking three, four weeks for something that wasn't made just for me even. We've... The era of e-commerce and the era of super fast fashion has changed that for us where we think everything should be instant. But it wasn't always that way. And it's not even like it was that way even like recently, you know, it's just the past 10 years or so we've suddenly changed the way we feel about how fast we should have things. It's so weird how fast it picked up. And it's a fashion industry problem. You know, I think I was just saying, you look at, you know, the furniture industry with the couch, but even the food industry, there's a reason why you don't assume that fast food or something that you're going to go and pick up is going to be as high quality as you going to a super nice restaurant and you're willing to go to that restaurant, sit and wait for them to cook it. (laughs) But for some reason in fashion, you're like, oh, a perfectly fit t-shirt that's high quality why isn't it ready now? It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird. It's so weird. I mean, we just are at our relationship with everything and with time has shifted into this completely unsustainable direction. I mean, be outside of clothing, like even what you're talking about with like food, like we want everything and we want it right now. It makes me think of Veruca Salt in, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, it's just not, that was supposed to be laughable at that point. And now that's like who we've all become. So another thing that I hear is it's just too much work to get something made for me because I have to like measure myself and I have to like know things about clothes. I mean, that's not really that much work, honestly. But how how does Son of a Tailor work around that, make that easier? So it's funny, I was just telling uh, some people on my team, we have to stop using the word measurements because it implies at Son of a Tail you had to get measured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something else really cool, and this is not my doing, uh, but it's the amazing development team in-house at Son of a Tailor. They've made this algorithm where you only have to put in your height, your weight, your age, and your shoe size. So these are things you pretty much already know, and we can make you a 
perfect fitting pattern just from those four pieces of information. Uh, we recently added a uh, body type to that. So you can add in kind of, you know, your an athletic body type, et cetera. But it's super accurate. We offer a free remake guarantee the first time to make sure you can get you that perfect pattern so that you can always reorder in your size. And less than 3% of people use it. Obviously, there's some non-zero amount of people who don't want to do the hassle, but it's not much of a hassle. You pretty much email customer service and they get in touch with you that day. But it's amazing. It takes 30 seconds. You have a perfect fitting pattern. And from then on, it's just one click. And we find that, so, you know, we market to men. And we find that it's less about, I mean, the shirts are really high quality. But what we often hear from guys that they like most about the service is just how easy it is. You know, they don't have to go to the mall and go to different stores and try on here and there and have all this hassle to find that one thing that's going to fit perfectly. Or on the high end, go to a store, have someone pull out a measuring tape, measure your shoulder, measure your waist, measure here or there. And all the time and expense associated with that, 30 seconds, it's done. You might have to wait seven days to get it delivered. But after that, it's set. One of the most challenging categories of clothing in terms of sustainable options is athletic wear. Yet you you can't go out there and work out in a pair of jeans or you don't want to go for a hike or a long bike ride in a dress. Although, yes, I've done both of those. I have many regrets about it. Don't be like me. Wear athletic wear to do these things. Active wear isn't a nice to have. It's a need to have. And shopping for it can be so difficult, especially if you're a sustainability-minded, secondhand first kind of person, which I know you are. There should be a more affordable and sustainable way to purchase premium athletic wear. Well, guess what? I found one, and it's Revive Athletics. Revive Athletics believes clothing should make you feel good when you move, and that starts with how you purchase it. Shopping secondhand is the most sustainable way to shop, and Revive Athletics is committed to providing high-quality, premium athletic wear so you can feel good when you shop, and you can feel even better when you move. Everything Revive Athletics sells is very gently used, and they carry a wide variety of sizes, from extra small to 5X, and they offer all of the premium brands you've been scoping out, like Lululemon, Nike, Athleta, Girlfriend Collective, you name it. And while a pair of Lululemon leggings would cost you around $100 if you purchase them new, at Revive, you won't pay over $35 a pair. You're getting really excited right now, aren't you? Revive will also buy your gently used athletic wear and athleisure no matter where you are, and they'll send you a prepaid label to ship items into them. By keeping your gently used items in circulation, you're helping to reduce their carbon footprint. And that, that my friends, is the hashtag secondhand first lifestyle right there. All items are carefully inspected and cleaned with Defunkify, an eco-friendly detergent made in Oregon. And I know you were wondering about that. Are you glad I told you? 
Revive Athletics is committed to building and supporting community. They offer classes in their space in Portland, Oregon, and they also donate items to Rose Haven, a Portland day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. What an incredible place to shop. I mean, I know you're sold now. You're like, tell me more, Amanda. How can I shop Revive Athletics? Well, if you're in one of my favorite cities, my former home, the place I think of as my hometown, Portland, Oregon, you can shop in person at their store, or you can go online at reviveathletics.com, no matter where you live. And even better, I have a special offer exclusively from members of the Clothes Horse community. Use promo code REVIVEIT15 to get 15% off your first purchase. And don't worry, I will include that in the show notes so you don't have to run and grab a pencil right now. The next time someone asks you where you got your athletic wear, you can tell them, thanks. It's revived. And know that you made the best decision and saved a heck of a lot of money too. Once again, that's reviveathletics.com. You can also find them on Instagram at revive underscore athletics. Go check it out. I think you're going to love what you see. Another thing that people often say is like, well, what if... You know, I did all that work, whatever that work is. I waited all that time. And then what if I don't like it? Because, I mean, I'm just going to preface this by saying I think that all of us have had so many negative experiences shopping for clothing in this fast fashion era that we assume that the odds are very high that when that box comes, we're not going to like it. Because that's that's where it's been. Like I said, about 50% of fast fashion clothes are returned. So we believe that there's a 50-50 chance that we're not going to like what we receive. What do you tell customers who are worried about that? Uh, well, gosh, and I guess the first thing I'd point them to is our NPS score. It's incredibly high. Our Trustpilot reviews are also incredible. Um, and our customer service team is here to kind of fix if there's any problems with the item. I think that's another benefit of not going to fast fashion. I can't imagine trying to call Zara and tell them I didn't like this, having them respond. I know. Can um, you imagine? <laughs> right? I'm just like, wow, like the thought of even calling one of these companies has never entered my mind. I don't mind. know if you can. Whereas customers message us constantly, you know, oh, when are you going to offer pants? When are you going to do this and that? And I had this idea about this, um, which is awesome. You know, we love hearing from our customers. And when there are issues, you know, occasionally there are manufacturing defects and then comes and it isn't perfect, we'll respond pretty much immediately and fix that issue. Mm -hmm. So I would put that on one side. The other thing that made me think of when you asked that question is, you know, if you're worried you're going to order something and not like it, I would be curious if any of that worry stems from I'm going to change my mind and want something else by the time this comes around. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. In that case, I'm kind of like, well, does it make sense to buy something at all? (laughs) Right? I mean, really, really. I, a lot of the companies I've worked for, you know, we were constantly doing a lot of analysis into returns because 
They were just growing year after year after year. And, you know, it was a whole mix of things. It was that the product didn't fit that well, that people were buying way too much, you know, other things. Maybe the photos didn't really convey the true nature of the garment, that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you return something, it's pretty standard that you're given an option of several boxes to tick to sort of explain why you returned it, right? And changed my mind was always a very, very common return reason. Usually it was like fit was number one and number two was changed my mind. And I think that speaks to how the convenience and nonstop nonstop flow of new clothing in the fast fashion era has made us buy a lot of stuff without thinking about it and changing our minds, you know? (laughs) Gosh, this is where I think if people were able to connect these images of waste or this river of clothing in Ghana to their shopping habits. And when they're about to press on the mouse by waiting, you know, 10, 15 seconds and say, wait a second, is this something I really want that's going to give me joy or is it going to end up in the trash? They might hesitate and say, actually, (laughs) probably not. Right, right. I mean, I think, imagine if we took a company that sells a ton of stuff like ASOS and when you were about to check out, they said, a window popped up and said, hey, just so you know that most of what you return is just going to be sent to the landfill or burned because we don't want to spend the money to process returns. Imagine if you got a pop-up that said that. You would be like, huh, okay, so what you're telling me that if I don't like this and I return it, it's probably going to get burned. Maybe I should think about this. (laughs) Maybe a lot of people would be like, well, whatever. I don't know. We take a strange leap of faith when we shop online anyway. But see, no one would do it because their sales would go down. Oh, yeah, of course. But if we got our coalition of fast fashion retailers to all do it and say, hey, we're all part of this zero waste movement. We're all going to put this thing at checkout because we all think you should only buy something if it's really going to give you joy. Yeah. Imagine that. What a game changer. Maybe that would work. <laughs> I know. I know. Once again, it's a fantasy world that I want I want to believe that can happen, but I realize it's hard, it's hard for me to see any of them getting on board with it. I mean, that's why I'm constantly saying like smaller business is the future because smaller businesses work in a more community-driven way. They are more focused on making these changes because it's a lot easier. Whereas like if H&M or Zara wanted to change everything they do, it would be like they'd have to turn the whole way around. <laughs> and I don't I don't know if they can do that. They're too big. Um, the other thing that I hear often is the assumption that made-to-order clothing is too expensive. What do you say to that? So, yes, <laughs> made-to-order being super expensive is a very common misconception. Um, it's also something we've worked on. You know, you think about tailoring and bespoke, if you were to get a fully bespoke suit, yes, that probably would be very expensive also because there's a lot of labor involved. Um, For us, we've been able to get our prices down pretty much to high street prices. A cinematic t-shirt is going to cost more than, you know, a $5 t-shirt from fast fashion, but it's not fully just because it's made to order and it's actually not that expensive. So for one, we're using super high quality fabric. So not Mm -hmm. the kind of fabric that's going to, you know, pill away, become clear after you've washed it. Um, our fabric is actually designed to be washed, you know, 20 times. Some of our customers have actually had these items five years or more. Um, and the next part of it is, you know, for us, because we have been focused on 
continuously improving our manufacturing methods over time, our prices are actually pretty much in line with any kind of high quality t-shirt you would get at a department store. So I'm here in London. If I were to go to Selfridges and shop from mm. I don't know, James Purse or any other kind of even Sunspell, which is another British brand, they're actually pricier than us. These products are not made to order. They are high quality fabrics and probably will last a long time. So I'll give them that. But they're not made to order and you don't really see a lot of people questioning their price. But um, we advertise a lot on social media and a lot of people question our price. That's a really good point. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I see that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most common comment uh, on our social media ads is, you know, $50 for a t-shirt. What are you talking about? And I really love some of the podcasts you've done on this where when you actually break down, okay, you've got the fabric cost, the cost of shipping the product, the cost of the retailer margin, the brand margin, actually paying someone to make the item. And then you add on the fact that this item is not made mass. It's actually made perfectly to you and it's going to last a long time. And then it's like, wait a second, is $50 actually that much to spend on this product versus a $5 t-shirt? I'm going to have to rebuy the next day. And I have the guilt of knowing that the person who made this probably didn't get paid. Exactly. Very, very true. I mean, I think that we just don't do that math. And we also, like, we have been confused about pricing. We've lost our perspective in the fast fashion era where we're like, no, T-shirts are $5. Maybe they're $10. And when we hear 50 we have that sticker shock. But, man, once again, if we could see pictures of a landfill filled with all of these crappy T-shirts that were 5 or $10, I think it would make an impact on our relationship with price. I totally agree. And actually one of the things that our customers like the best is when they get the shirts, one of the most things that's shared on social media is the hang tag that has the person's signature on the item. So imagine, you know, when you go to Starbucks and you get your name on the cup, but think about if your barista signed it with their name, getting a shirt signed by the maker rebuilds that human connection. And then you say, wait a second, Uh there's actually a person making this. And I think that that then also supports this idea of, hey, I should actually pay someone to make this shirt as opposed to this kind of anonymous <laughs> supply chain where you don't really have any human connection between your items. Yeah, yeah. Once again, like if all the fast fashion brands got together and did this at once, we could all see the humans who are making our stuff. But unfortunately at this point, like that's not going to happen because the humans who make our clothing are kind of like a dirty secret for these retailers. They don't want us to know they're there because then we'll know how little they pay them. Absolutely. There was this really great article in uh, the FT and it's titled Sustainable Fashion? Question mark. There's no such thing. And in it, you know, they talk about a lot of the kind of very surface level measures that a lot of brands are doing that you know, kind of fall into that greenwashing category. But actually there isn't fa- sustainable fashion because the supply chains are so opaque and that's really where a lot of the problems are. Oh, totally. And it's a hu- it would be a huge project to untangle that, but it's not it's not impossible. It just involves all of the biggest retailers holding hands on it and doing it together. If every brand out there said we are having zero tolerance on this kind of behavior in terms of like treatment of workers, payment of workers, etc., factories would have no choice but to get in line and do it right. But even if only one, like even if H&M really was making sustainable clothing, if all the other brands aren't, then h and is going to run into trouble getting factories 
who want to do things the right way because they're going to be like, sorry, it's cheaper and more profitable for us to go make stuff for Zara. Now, didn't some of the factories get together a little bit with the um, the controversy a few months back in China? I think a lot of brands all said, you know, we're not going to produce in this area because there are human rights violations. And I don't know if that was kind of a PR reason why they all kind of said, okay, we're all pulling out at the same time. Yeah, I think I think uh, ultimately the supply chains are so opaque that like really no one knows how successful that was or how real it was. Or I mean, it's 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 a mess. And in China specifically, like the government itself really obscures the true nature of what's going on in terms of forced labor. So even if you are actually a person who lives in China, born and raised a Chinese person, you don't even know what's really happening because the government does such an effective job of of obscuring it. So imagine being like an outside company trying to get any clear vision of what's happening there. It's like impossible. Uh, Some. It's a it's a very complex situation. That's why when brands are like, we can we can guarantee that none of our stuff is made using forced labor. I'm like, can you though? I don't think you can. <laughs> you know, I would rather hear a brand be very transparent, and be like, we're trying. Here's here are our obstacles, but instead we hear like, we can guarantee that none of our stuff is made with forced labor, and that's just by the nature of the situation, an untrue statement that makes me not believe anything else a brand says after that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. On that line, transparency in fashion. Transparency has become one of my least totally favorite ruined. words. Like, it's, it's a great word because it's needed. But on the other hand, the idea of transparency has become equated with, oh, we listed the address of our factory and we don't know what happens in it. Or if the factory that we don't own outsources this work to other factories, but the address yeah. is there. And suddenly you've got H&M winning all these awards for transparency. Yeah, <laughs> you, exactly. They they don't, unless they had someone in their company who was working in that factory every day and could 100% sign off on both everything being made exactly there and the conditions, even then I would still be really skeptical because there's so much corruption in supply chains. You know, like, I, like uh, yeah, the word transparency has been completely ruined. If anything, what we have come to be served as so-called transparency is – more opaque than ever. Yeah. Transparency as a word has become a shield. It's so funny. Yeah, it really, really has. But that's another reason why made to order is great because it forces you to know each garment, where is it in production, what is happening, who is handling it. Mm -hmm. And that means nothing gets lost and you actually just, there isn't really a way to put a shield over these things. And in some ways, you know, a bit of friction is good because it does keep those quality checks in line. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, like one of the reasons a lot of these larger fast fashion orders are outsourced and outsourced and outsourced some more, like just subcontracts, subcontracted over and over again is because these orders are so massive that, I mean, even my experience as a buyer, you know, a lot of times I didn't know who was making the stuff that I was buying at all. I might know who you were going to pay for it, but that was where it ended. And so if it was like a huge order, a 10,000 unit order, and I needed it in a month, it was probably going to be made by several factories, which also meant that the fit wasn't going to be consistent, that the sewing wasn't going to be consistent, that all these details might shift a little bit. So automatically then we're creating an even more inconsistent negative experience for our customer that's going to be 
disappointing in many cases. But we also like literally, we don't know who's making this stuff. Is it someone making it at home with their family, our children involved? We have no idea. And that is one of the many drawbacks with this like mass production is just, it's the unknowing, the lack of control over it as an outsider who is part of the development of that product in the first place. You're still as a buyer or a designer so far outside the actual creation of that product. It's, it's really uncomfortable when you take a step back and see that. You know, I think overall, it just seems like something we had talked about before and something I've been thinking about a lot is that when we see brands talking about sustainability it's really more in this glamorous, like, look at this new fabric or these new designs. Or like when H&M did that partnership with like Billie Eilish, it's this like really glamorous take on it. But really, the least glamorous part of the whole thing, the production is where the big sustainability wins would be. Oh, 100%. And uh, something I've been talking about, I actually just wrote a blog post on this, is how do we make supply chain cool again? And I say again, because... I don't know why I actually say it again, because I don't think it's ever been cool, except on the other hand, it should be cool. You know, you look at what are some of the biggest issues we face today, you know, COVID vaccine, transportation around the world and the cold supply chain. That is a supply chain problem. Amazon, as much as I dislike them, they are one of the most successful companies in the world. They're a very cool, quote unquote, company to work for, especially among the MBA crowd that I was part of. They're a supply chain company. Apple. Tim Cook came up through the supply chain and that's how he's actually added a ton of value to the company. And um, I was writing in the Son of a Tailor blog because uh, I wanted to talk about how important supply chain is. And I pulled up some data on different degrees that are conferred in the US and business is the number one degree to get. But within business, if you look at Google Trends, finance, marketing and accounting all get around the same amount of kind of searches and traffic online. And then supply chain is the laggard at the bottom. <laughs> but then you think about it, it's like the most valuable companies in the world, the biggest problems we're solving. And then you look at fashion, pretty much everything in that space is really a supply chain problem. And I think rebranding supply chain is actually a really cool initiative that we could be doing. I mean, I love that idea. And I am going to tell you that supply chain is like a massive issue right now, even in terms of the economies of various countries, including the United States, like because of the pandemic, we all kinds of companies are running into all kinds of supply chain issues. And it's literally the most press I've seen supply chain get in a really long time. It's not in the way that I want it to be. Like I want us to be talking about like ethics and sustainability, but what people are talking about is like, oh shit, like we're running out of stuff to sell because of all these issues with supply chain. And I like to hope but at least some people are seeing these these kinds of news stories in their Apple news feed and it's suddenly occurring to them that everything they get has all of this like integral complicated steps involved in it. That it's not just like this instant like here's a factory that churns out everything and then it appears in your store. So I hope we're all going to start to understand the importance of supply chain at least a little bit more. Even that it exists is step one for most people. That it exists. <laughs> Products don't just appear. Yeah, yeah. I think that they, for most people, they don't know that. <laughs> There's that uh, quote, and it was, I think it was tied to one of the US presidential elections. Uh, 
And I think the quote was just, you know, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, <laughs> but I almost think we should apply that to the supply chain and remind people how often supply chain comes up. So, you know, when you're shopping during a pandemic and there's no toilet paper, that's a supply chain issue. Right. And constantly right. remind people, hey, it's the supply chain. That is problem solving. That is how items get to you. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Like I can go to – I mean, we were having a lot of supply chain issues here in the United States during the pandemic around groceries, and it seems like that has gotten back in check. But like if you go to, say, like a Target – right now, you still see a lot of empty shelves. And it's not because people are shopping like crazy. It's because it's the supply chain. <laughs> you know, um, I was even just reading this week how like, now there's such a delay at the ports that there's just stuff piling up. And what that is doing is creating a shortage of ships and containers to ship stuff because they're just sitting there waiting to be unpacked because of this backup. And so that's going to continue to delay all kinds of supplies, both sort of the ingredients and materials you need to make things, but also finished products, which means that's going to slow down the supply chain even more. And so like, it's going to be a really long time until the supply chain catches up again. So supply chain, stupid. <laughs> It's funny. I just read something on that on uh, Twitter. Oh, really? Uh, it was a thread. I think potentially a lot of the same data that you read also about essentially connecting it to all these shipping shipping containers that are going around the world um, kind of brought into the news cycle by the Suez Canal issue uh, a month or so back. But pretty much it was talking about how people are worried about inflation and some people were tying that to a lot of the monetary policy. Uh, but they were all saying, you know, a lot of this inflation is also just because of all these supply chain issues. And suddenly if you have demand for something that there's just not enough of because all the shipments are delayed, the prices are going to go up. And it doesn't have anything to do with monetary policy, but it has to do with, again, the supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. It's the supply chain. <laughs> I know I've definitely I uh, was talking to someone the other day because I one thing I see a lot is like okay well prices are going up because like everyone wants to get paid a living wage now and it's not fair which is like a whole a whole thing but there's just not enough stuff to sell right now oh living wage how stupid yeah yeah how stupid one of the things I've been doing most for a lot of my clients right now is trying to figure out how to raise prices without totally freaking everyone out um, and it's and they're raising their prices not because anyone's getting paid more but because of the like the supply chain all the way back to like getting the cotton harvested in the fields is like messed up right now. Well, Michelle, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Do you have any like words of wisdom that you would like everyone to hear? <laughs> Some parting thoughts? I think on the pricing discussion, this also goes back to the quality versus fast mm -hmm. fashion. How do we get people to think less in the price of a garment and more in cost per wear? Because, for example, with us, you know, if you're buying a T-shirt that you can wash mm -hmm. and it looks the same again and again and again, if a $50 T-shirt you wear 10 times versus a $5 T-shirt you wear once, they're actually the same price. And environmentally, our T-shirt is significantly, right. significantly less expensive and also ethically because, you know, the person who made it is getting paid. There's just so many benefits to <laughs> investing in quality. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's something I think about a lot because different ways of dissecting this problem 
appeal to different kinds of people. Like for some people, all they need to hear about is the environmental impact and that will help them make better choices. Other people, I do think it comes down to that cost per wear kind of idea. Like the va- you have to demonstrate the value. You know, you could wear this shirt four times and it would end up being $5 a wear. You could wear this shirt 40 or 400 times and it would be $3 a wear or $1 a wear, you know, or 50 cents a wear. And that kind of thing, that appeals to a large, our large group of consumers. And I do think, I think that unfortunately, uh, it's going to be on the companies that are changing our relationship with clothing or changing the way we consume clothing. It's going to be on them to educate around that. Like I always say, this is such a gross metaphor, but show how the sausage is made. I think if everybody would get together and show how the clothing sausage was made and dissect it by each point and the cost there and the benefits of shopping small or shopping a more sustainable model, if if we all did that collectively, we would see a massive explosion in customers being engaged in that. I just think every way it, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be like the burden of of companies who are doing things the right way to educate everyone else in the world. But unfortunately, that's where we are right now. Yeah. But with fast fashion, I don't know. I guess it's the startups who have to do it because I think the big companies aren't. Mm-hmm. They aren't. I mean, why would they? It's They have too much to lose. So when I kind of look at the industry at large, and this was something that I learned also in business school, is really to think about what are the overall KPIs and objectives that the industry is focused on. Mm -hmm. And fashion is kind of a funny industry because on the one hand, it's super innovative. You know, they're releasing new trends and new products every few weeks. And hardly anybody is doing that. Even, you know, tech companies are, you have to wait for an Apple event. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of those KPIs then end up being how do we design faster and cheaper? And nobody's really thinking about better. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's totally true. You know, when you go to H&M, there isn't this idea of better. It's just about it's here, it's now, and you can look like this Instagram and it's going to change tomorrow. And when you think about what the future is going to look like, that is going to feel absurd 20 years from now. And it's, a lot of the startups that exist today are going to be creating that future, but a lot of it has to do with zooming out and say, okay, what KPIs are we really optimizing for? And are those the right ones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. It's reevaluating our approach to things. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for taking the time to talk to me today. Gosh, thank you. This has been so much fun. I also get really riled up just talking about problems in the fashion industry. Me too. Me too. So it's always nice to talk to someone else about it. Isn't Michelle the best? I had such a great time talking to her. You know, I've listened to this conversation like 27 times now, and I've enjoyed it every single time. (laughs) She sent me a promo code that you can use at sonofataylor.com. But she said this in her email about it. Quote, People should only buy what they need, not what they won't use. And I agree. Should you need something, please use this promo code. It is CLOSEHORSE10, and you can use it for 10% off through the end of 2021 at sonofataylor.com. I'll share all of that in the show notes. 
One thing that really stuck with me from our conversation that I've been pondering for the past few days now is Michelle's belief that future generations will look back on fast fashion and think that it's such a wild, antiquated, ridiculous idea. You know, like cornflakes can cure cancer or those weird machines that you would stand on that would like vibrate off the fat or something like that. Like these, we laugh at these now, but these were dead serious at the time. And I hope with all of my heart that Michelle is right. And not, not just for the end of fast fashion, but for everything that has been fast fashionified. Everything whose value and significance has been cheapened. Not literally cheapened, as in costs less money, but more figuratively cheapened, as in less significant, less thoughtful, less intentional, and therefore less valuable and more disposable to us. It's the disposable thing that really gets to me. Something that's been on my mind for a while now is this. How do we make sustainability, consumer activism, the push for a more ethical world, how do we make that more inclusive, more accessible, and more welcoming? Because real talk, it's been on my mind a lot in the past year. It's been on my mind a whole hell of a lot the past few weeks. I do not find the larger sustainability community particularly inclusive or welcoming. It's often but not always clicky and not very supportive of others working in the space. It's more competitive than collaborative. And I suppose a lot of this is human nature, but we have to change that. It's often led by people of a similar socioeconomic class, by people who haven't been as overtly impacted by the fast fashion system. It's led by people for whom it's very easy to say, end fast fashion now, quit buying it, call it cold turkey. We know that for many people, it's a lot more complicated than that. How do we get more retail and warehouse workers involved? How do we get people who can't afford expensive, quote, susty fashion involved? By the way, I'm just going to say this, say it once. I hate the term susty. Let's never say it on here again. We'll say sustainable. <laughs> but how do we get those people involved? How about the people who just can't buy sustainable ethical clothing because brands don't make their size? What about them? How do we get them involved? How do we turn this into a movement where everyone, everyone feels welcome and seen, regardless of where they live, how much money they have, their education level, what they wear, where they work, the color of their skin, the size of their bodies, the age of their bodies, their health and mobility? How does everyone get involved how do we get there? This is something that literally keeps me awake at night as I strive constantly to make the clothes horse community, of which I guess I am by default the leader, as inclusive, welcoming, and positive as possible. I would love to hear from you, your thoughts on how we can do even better, how we can bring all of the branches of this sustainability tree together, because it's important that we get as many people involved in this mission if we want to end fast fashion in our lifetime, we can't do it alone and we need to do it by working together. I'll keep working on it, but I'll need your help and support too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, researched, written, edited, and hosted by me, Amanda Lee McCarty, a woman who's about to drive two cats on a road trip for a week. What a thrill. <laughs> 
a thrill ride, baby. If you're enjoying yourself around here, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. That's really how we spread the news and we spread the mission to dismantle fast fashion in our lifetime. If you'd like to support my work, please check out patreon.com slash close horse podcast. And lastly, never leastly, thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.